You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day, and uh, let me just kind of get the elephant out of the room here. Uh, there's an elephant in the there's room? There's an elephant in the room, in the form of massive towers with huge speakers on them. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to just, yeah, speak to that for a moment. Some of you are probably wondering what's going on. We, uh, uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, we just, we heard a lot of feedback, and, and not in the bad sound feedback, but feedback from you, um, that the sound was actually really good and uh, very clear, and, and we felt over the same the way over in the gym, and, and uh, uh, we used this actual setup, and uh, it got us wondering if this setup would work in this room, and if it would fix some of the sound issues that we feel like have been sort of endemic to this place for the years that I've been here, and so um, we feel like it, it makes a huge wow. difference. I, had, I actually had somebody a while ago that's a musician say, who is that drummer? Yeah, I said that. Well, that's just Jeff, Jeff. a regular drummer. You just can hear him today. Yeah, everything is so much more clear. So before, the sound. before we made any major changes, we rented this system to make sure that this was going to be something that would uh, work out well. And in the future, you may be seeing a potential change because it's important for you to be able to hear. You know, we we yeah. we believe in excellence. Uh, we believe that everything we do should be done as unto the Lord. And uh, and the uh, so main thing is. Can you hear me clearly? Because that's that's important. Because that's the important thing, Jesse. right? When I, yeah, okay. absolutely. And so, just wanted to let you know that's uh, they won't be here next week, but they they may be here in the future. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be hard to go back to the old. Uh, it is route like after a dog this. that returns to its vomit. vomit. <laughs> Like the Bible says. Well, for Mother's Day, we wanted it to sound yeah. to be really wonderful, right? This is really especially, for you moms. Especially since we're not teaching a Mother's Day sermon today, we're going to continue with Nehemiah. Uh, my favorite Mother's Day sermon is Rahab the harlot. Oh, here he goes. Rahab. Because she's a, she became a woman of faith. Right. I mean, it is a great woman story, but Melody Young threatened me with my life if I ever did that again on Mother's Day, so... So I don't know, how do you top Rahab the Harlot for Mother's Day? So historically, I don't typically do a special Mother's Day <laughs> message. We're going to do a regular old boring Bible Yeah, we're, we're continuing the series. But let me take, bring you up to your date of, of what happened this last week. I spent the last week in Colorado Springs at, uh, was invited to come out there by Focus on the Family. And uh, they invited me to speak to a group of Christian counselors from all over the community of Colorado Springs. There were about 60 of them on, uh, I think it was Thursday morning. Yes, it was. We flew out there on Wednesday. And I took Michael, a videographer, with me and was able to speak to them about the hospital church style of ministry. and had a great time with those Christian counselors. And then at 1 o'clock, they invited me to speak to the counselors that actually are on staff at Focus on the Family. They have 18 counselors that are there on site that field about 1,500 calls per month, these 18 counselors do, helping people from all over the world. And then Jeremy Keaton, who is the director of counseling for Focus on the Family, sat in front of our camera for two hours for an interview as for the Fearless Series for Men that I'm currently producing. And it was uh, quite an incredible experience for me, uh, my whole Christian life. Focus on the Family has been the epitome of uh, being advocates for the family, advocates for the marriage, advocates for truth. And, and though there are people all over the world that want to put them out of business and want to silence Focus on the Family, starting with Dr. James Dobson, who started it, uh, and the group that is there now, they have continued to hold 
course. Uh, the, the building facility takes up almost a full city block there in Colorado Springs. They have 650 employees, and you can't even get past the front desk unless you are escorted into the facility by a staff member because they do have people that threaten them a good bit, and then they have people that seek to do them harm. And so I was really honored to be invited to be able to do that and that Jeremy Keaton agreed to sit for an interview and to be a part and put focus on the family stamp on the Fearless Series for Men that hopefully right after the first of the year sometime will be, will be available. Uh, next stop is we're going to Los Angeles, California, where I will uh, interview, uh, interview Roland Slade, who is a pastor in San Diego. He's a black pastor in San Diego. And he's coming up to Los Angeles for the interview. And uh, Logan uh, Roland was, uh, was the chairman of the executive committee of, South, of the entire Southern Baptist denomination for the past two years. He is now still on the executive community. So, so he is a very well-known uh, man within the denomination. And then Johnny Hunt, who is uh, the retired pastor of Woodstock First Baptist Church, Woodstock, Georgia, a church that averages about 15,000 in attendance on Sundays. He is now the vice president of the North American Mission Board that is in in, in, in charge of the sending of all of the missionaries that are sent by Baptist churches all over the country. And he is also going to sit for an interview. And uh, so I'm really excited. And then after that, we go to Atlanta, uh, where I'll interview three individuals there. And we're getting close to the end of the interviewing part of this thing. And then we're going to be going to the editing room and begin to put this together. So God is just opening doors. And I, keep, I tell people all the time, I'm nobody, but I know a whole lot of somebodies. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's not who you are sometimes, but it's who you know. And, and God is through those, those relationships that I have been able to develop over the years with some very, very important people that are in the work of helping hurting people. Uh, God is really now using that to open some doors. So totally excited about that. Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. Because, as I said, we are going to continue our study of Nehemiah. We've been doing a verse-by-verse -verse study. And we come to chapter 6 today. And we are doing this, we've titled this series, Under the Influence, because Nehemiah wasn't a prophet, wasn't a priest, wasn't a king, wasn't a preacher, but he was an influencer, and God used him in a mighty way. I remember hearing a story that Dan Yeary told. If you've been around uh, the east side of Fort Worth for four or five decades, you'll recognize the name Dan Yeary. He was the youth pastor many years ago um, at Sagamore Hill Baptist Church and then went off and became a pastor. In fact, he was pastoring in Coral Gables, which is a, a small community in the Miami area, while I was pastoring in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, before I came back here in 1984 and we started this, this whole, uh, uh, what do you call it, this rodeo here. And, uh, but yeah. Dan's a great storyteller. I remember, remember hearing Dan tell a story that impacted me and it's still with me. It's a story of his son whose name was Wes. And at the time, Wes was a student at Baylor University. Sick on bears. Go bears. And at the time, as I said, he was a student at Baylor University. You know, that got the feedback of about what I would expect from you the know, Baylor Bears. Come on now, give me a break, okay? There's one or two things good in my life, and Baylor was one of them, okay? Well, three people agree. I, I think <laughs> three really people exciting. agree. Yeah. But Baylor has a history of hosting the Special Olympics for the entire community every year, and they do it in their facilities. And uh, Wes was assigned that year to pick up a, a young boy. They always have a student that kind of chaperones the kids that are in the Special Olympics there, and to pick up a little boy and get him there to the, the site and also to stay with him during the day. And the boy that he was in charge of was a, a young boy in a wheelchair because of cerebral palsy. And because of that, his hands were crooked and, and gnarled, and he could barely... Use 
you could barely understand anything that he was saying. And Wes said by the end of the day, they were able to begin to communicate a little bit. But when they got, when they arrived at the stadium, Wes said that he began to push the little boy around to the various events so that he could watch and enjoy the events. But he said that when they announced the first call for the 50-yard dash, he said the little boy began to get excited and started you know, making noises and all that kind of stuff. And Wes said, Dad, I, I, at first I thought that he just wanted to go watch the 50-yard dash, so I pushed him over there. But when we got there and, and got him in place, he said he began to squirm. He continued to squirm, and he continued to make noise. And then he said, I figured out that he actually wanted to compete in the 50-yard dash. So I went over and checked the roster, and he said, Dad, his name was on the roster for the race. So I pushed him out there and lined him up with the other kids, and the race began. And by the time he says that this young man got 10 yards, the race had already ended. It took about two minutes for all of the other contestants to cross the 50-yard line, and he was only at the 10-yard line. But he said, Dad, he just kept working, he kept working, he took his wrong hands, and he was pushing those wheels. And he says, it wasn't very long before people in the stands began to notice. And they began to stand, and they began to chair this little guy. And, and then other events around, they began to halt so that everybody, even on the infield, was turning and was watching what this, this, guy, this kid was doing. And, and he said, after 19 minutes, he said it took him 19 minutes to push himself in that wheelchair 50 yards to cross the goal line. And he said, Dad, when, when, when he crossed the goal line, he said, the place just absolutely came apart. And then he said to his dad this. He said, Dad, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I've never been so moved and so challenged as I was today by that little boy in the wheelchair with cerebral palsy. Because you see, in his struggle against great odds, he just wouldn't quit. And I can think of no other thing that that characterizes the man that we are studying about in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself, than that. That Nehemiah just wouldn't quit. Nehemiah, in fact, didn't even seem to have quit in his human vocabulary. And we've been studying for weeks and weeks, about, what, eight or nine weeks already. So if you're new for us, you're kind of coming into the middle of this thing. But, man, Nehemiah faced incredible odds that he had to overcome in order to fulfill the purpose that God had had for him, and that was to rebuild the wall of protection around the ancient city of Jerusalem because it had been laid bare for about 150 years since the Babylonians had come in in 587 B.C. and had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, leveled the wall, and carried the Jewish people off into captivity. In fact, Nehemiah was one of those that was born in captivity in Persia. He was a slave when we meet him in chapter 1, and he was the bearer to the king. So right off the bat, you see there's all kinds of challenges for Nehemiah to be able to accomplish this thing that God began to place upon his heart, that he would be the one that would go back and that God would use him for the final rebuilding of that wall of protection around the city. And when he got there, he faced the challenge that the people were demoralized. And there were also enemies, little petty governors and petty fiefdoms around that they didn't want the city refortified. They wanted to be able to have instant access, easy access to pilfer throughout the city anytime they wanted. So his enemies were constantly coming against him, trying to stop this work, trying to stop this important work that God had assigned to Nehemiah. And when we come to chapter 6, the attacks don't stop. They just get personal. And it's almost as if a last-ditch effort of the enemies, Tobiah and 
and Sanballat and some of the others that we've heard about in the text before, that they have not been able to get Nehemiah to stop the work. And so almost in a, in a last-ditch effort, in chapter 6, they begin to attack Nehemiah personally. They try to use the most powerful tool, the most powerful destructive force in the universe to bring him down, the human tongue. The human tongue. In fact, the book of James in the New Testament tells us that the tongue, though it is small, is the most powerful force, if you will, on earth. He says that it's like that little spark that's very small but can set an entire forest afire. It's like the rudder of a ship that in comparison to the size of the ship, that little rudder can turn a great ocean liner. And and we know in our, in our own experience, how powerful our words are and how powerful the tongue is. And so in this last-ditch effort to stop the work, they, they use the tongue and they begin to try to stop the work on the wall. And we're going to talk about three things that they did this morning in this, in this perspective and understand some very, very important things. First of all, they conspired to distract Nehemiah from the work. Verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 informs us, quite frankly, that the wall was almost already completed by the time we get to this particular point that Nehemiah is writing about. The only part that wasn't completed was the gates. So the city was still open, if you will. There was a wall there, but all the gates around the city had not been completed, so people could still come in and out of the city without stopping them in any way. And so the enemies didn't want that final phase of the construction to finish out where the gates were there, the fortified gates, because once that was done, then the city was going to be completely fortified. So in a last-ditch effort, they tried to distract Noah from completing this this work. And so verse 2 says that they send Nehemiah a message, a letter, if you will, written out on obviously scrolls. And in verse 2, it tells what that message was. It says, Nehemiah, come out and meet with us in the plain of Ono. Now that was a physical location out there. And they, so they invited him, come and meet with us, Nehemiah, and let's have a confab. And Nehemiah responds to them, and I love how he responds. He says, Oh no. Isn't that great? Isn't that, that's so perfect. I mean. I couldn't have even made that up. It was a softball. It was a it's, softball. It really was. Right. He says, oh, no. He says, I am doing a great work. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So, you see, it indicates that Nehemiah is kind of on to them. Nehemiah has figured out their game. They've done all kinds of stuff to try to demoralize and all those kinds of things and stop the work. And now in the last-ditch effort, they're going to just try to distract him from the work and stop it. In fact, it says they're so determined that four times they send Nehemiah this message over and over and over. Come and meet with us in the plain of Ono. And four times Nehemiah says, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And what it tells us is that Nehemiah refused to be distracted from the purpose that God had placed upon him. He would not be sidetracked, if you will, from his focus, from his calling, from his mission, from his purpose. And I can't help but be struck by the thought that so often in life, we don't accomplish the things that are really important because we get distracted in chasing other things. 
There's a shiny object over here, or there's another idea over here, and we get distracted from that thing in our marriage, in our, our relationships, in our parenting, in every area of life. Somehow, we wake up one day and go, wait, where did I leave? Where did I miss this out? I must have been distracted. I remember when my son, Zach, who is now 36 years old, that's hard to believe I have a 36, actually, I have a 39-year-old daughter. She's going to be the big 4-0 in July. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, she's, that's going to be interesting. But anyway, we're talking about my son right now. He was 36 years old, but he was five or six years old when he started his first year of T-ball. Now, later on, when they got into, um, you know, a little bit further on, Robert Mangano and I coached together, and I had to constantly overcome his mistakes. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> Isn't that right? But we, but we worked at it. I, I, I taught him along the way how to be a good coach. But anyway, I was, his, I was Zach's coach in his first year of T-ball, and they called me coach. And Zach loved putting on the uniform. You know, that's one of the best things about T-ball. I mean, you put on the shirt. It's got colors. It's got your name. It's got a number. And then, man, those socks. Those socks with the stripes, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just really puts the whole uniform on. Then you put the cap. And, you know, getting dressed for the game just put Zach in the right frame of mind to be his best. He was putting on his game face. Now, picture this. It really happened. This is not mythology. It really happened. And it should actually go down in sports history. Because Zach comes to the plate and the ball is on the tee. And Zach rears back, and he blasts the ball off the tee with everything he had. And he put all 35 pounds behind the swing. Let's say it th put it that way. Zach wasn't a big guy, and so he didn't hit many out of the infield. But he did hit a single, and he makes it to first base. And then the next batter comes to the plate. And I still remember this kid. His name was Vicente Bernal. Vicente, at the ripe old age of six, was already sporting a beard and a mustache. <laughs> he, was, he was over twice. I think he probably weighed 100 pounds when he was six years old. He was a big kid. He was my power hitter. He was my cleanup batter, if you will. And so Vicente came up to the plate. And we always knew when Vicente was out there, the ball was going to go, and it did. I mean, he just blasted one into the outfield. So Zach is off running from first base. First baseman's coach is going, go, run, 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 Zach. So Zach's running like a scalded dog to second base. He rounds second base, and the third base coach is saying, come on, Zach, come on, Zach, come on, Zach. So Zach's running toward, as he rounds second, he's running, he's motoring toward third base with everything that he's got. And when he rounds third base, it's obvious he's going to score. He's going to score a run, his first run in his professional career. But by this time, the ball has come in from the outfield, and it is in the shortstop's hand. And there was nobody for the shortstop to throw it to. He didn't dare throw it to the catcher because there's no way the catcher was going to catch it. So he's running towards Zach. So picture this motion. It is now a foot race. And it's in slow motion. Okay. So Zach is going, and the kid with the ball is doing this, and Zach's running, and the kid's running, going to tag him with the ball, and then it happened. Zach looks up, and Mom is in the stands behind home plate. And she's standing up, and she's going, run, Zach, run, Zach. And Zach sees her halfway home to the plate, and he raises his head and says, hi, Mom. 
oh, this is true. It was horrible. I'm over there in the dugout. I'm going, oh, no. And mom recognizes what is taking place. And she goes, no, Zach, run, Zach, run, Zach. And he's waving, hi, mom. And the kid with the ball, the shortstop, gets to Zach. And he doesn't just tag him out. He blows him away. Because at six years old, you don't have that much control over your body to stop. It takes a while to stop that train once it gets going. And he just bowled right over Zach. And he didn't get to score his run. Now, Zach mm. did two things wrong here. We had a talk after the game. <laughs> First of all, he forgot that the goal was home plate not waving at mom. He forgot that. Second of all, he forgot about the kid with the ball. He forgot that getting to the plate was what really mattered him. So Zach never knew what hit him when the kid bowls him over. Now, that's a problem that we seem to never get over. It's not just T-ballers at six years old, is it? That we're going along, we're doing something, we have something in front of us that is vitally important, and all of a sudden we get distracted by this other thing, and we never achieve the goal. And it's very easy to do in marriage, is it not? The things that you were doing early on in marriage, maybe you get distracted by other things. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's all those other things. And you, you stop doing those very things that you were doing in the early years. And later on, you realize, wow, we've really missed it. Or as a parent, you know, you're pouring yourself into your children and then your career takes off maybe and you get distracted by that and your kids graduate from high school and you realize that I don't really know my kids like I did at one time. Even as a believer of living the Christ life and following Jesus and being more conformed to the image of, of Christ. It's real easy to just get distracted by all this stuff. And then one day you look back and you go, wow, I really lost it. I really went off the track. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. He said, this one thing I do, and I love that one thing, you know, curly in city slickers, one thing, one you know, thing. one thing. It's really important because it's one thing. He said, this one thing I do, this is it, forgetting what lies behind I strain forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on. Well, what is that thing he's pressing on? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I will not be distracted. I press on. I keep my eye on the goal. Now, let me ask you a question. As believers, as Christ followers, God has called us to the great work. He's called us to the kingdom work and to reflect the character of Christ in every area of our lives, in our work life, in our marriage life, in our parenting life. Where in your life, though, could you internally answer this question that you've gotten distracted? You've taken your eye off the ball, and you chase some shiny object that puts you off the track. It's something we constantly have to fight with, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I recently had to, had to separate myself from a national ministry that had reached out to me because they believed I had some things that, that I could bring to the table to help them in the work. And then when I became involved in that, they began to try to change me. They began to try to distract me from God's call on my life at this particular time. And they wanted me to change what I was doing. And it was difficult for me. And it was confusing. And it was discouraging. And quite frankly, for a matter of weeks, it was depressing for me. And I ultimately had to say to them, you know what? Oh, no. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. 
I'm not going to allow you or anybody else to get me off the track that God has me on. And that's what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said, look, I'm doing a great work. This is God's work. And I will not be distracted from what is important in order to come out and have this confab with you. Listen, believer in Jesus Christ, there are a million things in this world that will distract you from the prize, that will distract you from the goal, that will take you off the track if you let them do that. Hmm. You gotta learn to say, oh no. Oh no. You know, uh, this is so practical, even down to just simple tasks like coming to church. Right, I mean, how many distractions, how many things get in the way of, of making the decision to just come to church on Sunday morning? There's so many things, as simple as brunch, right? And I mean, don't get me wrong, I love brunch. It's a great, it's a great thing. It's a great invention of modern man. But it's, well, he likes second breakfast, too, like I do. the hobbits did. I do. You know, I told First Service, this is just free. I'm giving you insider information here at this point, especially for those of you online uh, and those of you who watch the service after it's aired. You can tell which service we are airing on YouTube, which one we keep, by whether or not the coffee that I am drinking is iced or hot. I'm serious. This is a true story. So This this is true. I, I go to Coffee Folk every Sunday morning. And I get an Americano, that's my drink of choice. But I recognize that if I get a second Americano by second service, it's not hot anymore. And that's not good. So I get an iced coffee and I put it in the fridge. And after first service, I switch over. So if you see me drinking out of a straw, you're watching second service. Folks, I'm telling you, the kid needs to get a life. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, have, I have a system. I have a, a routine, right? So understand that the opponents of Nehemiah... Once they realized that they were not going to distract him, uh, they sought to begin to demoralize him. Verse 5, it says, In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Notice that it says an open letter. So this is no longer simply a letter to Nehemiah. This is a public letter. This had been distributed likely to uh, the city streets for people to read. It had been copied. People were, were all over town talking about it. This would be the equivalent of if you were trying to distract someone in modern times by sending them a message over and over on Facebook Messenger And once you realized you were not going to uh, meet the goal that you were trying to meet, posting on your page and tagging them publicly (laughs) so that people could then take it and share it. So it goes out to the whole world. Exactly. This is a public message. Verse 6, it says, in it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Hmm. All right. So the public letter, a couple things regarding this letter. Number one, it is gossip. Let's just call it what it is. It is gossip. Notice that it begins with the phrase, it's being reported among the nations. (laughs) This is the ancient equivalent of, have you heard the rumor? Have you heard the rumor? Now, the rumor is, according to this letter, that Nehemiah is building not only a wall, but he's building a rebellion against King Artaxerxes. And that once the wall is finished and the city is fortified, he will become king of Jerusalem and he will have a defense mechanism to protect himself from Artaxerxes. Uh, Now, notice that in the letter, there's no sources for where this rumor is coming from. It's just a vague the nations. 
right? The nations are saying it's this. It's kind of the word on the street. It's the word on the street. Yeah. One way that you know gossip is for sure gossip, we'll talk more about this in a moment, is that there's no source. It's just this vague people are saying this, right? It's not only gossip, but the second thing this letter is, is it's slander. It's almost certainly not the rumor around the nations, right? This is made up. Uh, in fact, if you read Nehemiah, as we have over the last 10 weeks or so, Nehemiah seems like he's in pretty good standing with King Artaxerxes. Uh, he, the king gave him all that he needed, all the supplies, the permission, the letter informing people he might come across as he's going to Jerusalem, that he's been given authority by the king to rebuild the wall. Once he was there, he was promoted by the king as governor of Judah. We talked about that last week. Uh, he has done a lot of things in his time as governor to reflect well upon Artaxerxes. So it seems like he has a good amount of respect. We talked about that last week, respecting the earthly representative of God, right, and in, in how however you've been promoted up. Nehemiah's done a lot of this very well. He's even, he's even taken care of the diplomats that have come in from other nations. Huh. And so this is almost certainly not the rumor going around the nations. This but is a lie. But people to think that. Exactly. But this is where sl it becomes slander, right? It's not only gossip, but it's actually slanderous because it's seeking to attack the character of Nehemiah that is obviously not true. Now, I don't think I need to make a case for why gossip and slander is bad in the household of God, but in case you do need convincing, <laughs> let me do my job, I guess. Uh, second, while we're in the neighborhood. While we're here. Second uh, Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, says to them, and this is hard, these are hard words, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's saying, my concern for you is that you have been deceived, people of God. That your simple devotion to following Jesus has been completely thwarted. And that like even the garden who is deceived by Satan, you too have been led astray. And then he fleshes it out. I mean, he doesn't even leave it up to the imagination. He fleshes it out. He, he kind of comes to a, a close in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. <laughs> he says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish and that you may not find me as you wish. <laughs> we may not like what we see. <laughs> and he, he, he fleshes that out, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, Anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, there and disorder. There have been people that had been doing, calling Paul bad things yes. so that the people would abandon him, as exactly. a matter of fact. Yeah. Now, if you just take these descriptors, first of all, it's a perfect description of Twitter. Second of all, um, <laughs> these are all bad categories to be looped into. Now, it's not often when I'm making an argument from the text that both points happen to just be nicely bound up in one little verse with a bow on it. But gossip and slander are so closely tied together that it just happens to be the case here. And, and hear me when I say this. You never want to end up in this category. Gossip, slander, conceit, all the things that are mentioned here, you never want to end up in this category. And the New Testament have several lists of bad categories you want to avoid. Gossip and slander are almost always in those <laughs> lists. Now, come back to Nehemiah for a moment. The question becomes, why did they do this? Why did they write an open letter? I think they were probably hoping to accomplish 
at least one of three things. The first one is that they were hoping Nehemiah would lose support. They were hoping that as this letter traveled and and reached more and more people, it would get the people second-guessing their participation with Nehemiah. That they would read this and they would go, wait a minute, I don't want to be a part of a rebellion. I'm not trying to start a war with artisans. We just got out of exile. Why would we want to go back into exile? I, I don't want to have anything to do with the wall. And that would have really thwarted Nehemiah's plans badly because Nehemiah needed the people in order to rebuild the wall. He couldn't do it on his own. It was a massive undertaking. So I think that was one of the things they were hoping for. Second, I think they hoped that Nehemiah's energy would be diverted to defending himself. That he would have so much uh, fielding questions and having to to diffuse arguments about what this letter said regarding him that he would not have enough time at all to do any of the organizational or administrative things needed to get the wall rebuilt. And third, I think they just flat out hoped that Nehemiah would get demoralized and quit. (laughs) That he would just... It would just be too much for him. And he'd go, you know, I don't have time for that. I can't do this anymore. And, and if any one of those things happened, it would have been a success. The letter would have accomplished its purpose. They would have got what they were hoping to get. They were hoping that this thing would go viral and it would just ultimately be too much for him to handle. That's ultimately, by the way, how gossip grows, isn't it? Exponentially. <laughs> it kind of just goes on and on and on. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw in a leadership magazine where the pastor and his wife are sitting on the front row uh, during a time of worship. He's about to get up and, and begin to preach, and he leans over to his, his bride, and he says, my ear kind of hurts. And the people behind him hear him, and they turn around to the people behind them, and they say, the pastor has an earache. And those people turn around to the people behind them, and they say, the pastor has a hearing aid. <laughs> and they turn around to the people behind them, and they say, the pastor's having trouble hearing. And then they turn around to the sweet little old woman in the very back row, and they say, the pastor has a double earring. (laughs) To which she says, that's it. I'm out of here. (laughs) And she leaves. That's crossed the line right there. Crossed the line. (laughs) You know, it's a silly silly cartoon, but it illustrates the point well, that gossip not only spreads, but it also seems to evolve. Mm -hmm. And notice it never evolves for the better. It's always worse. Goes you know, from an earache to, uh, to a double, double earring. earring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in 2020, when I uh, when I got COVID, there was a rumor going around that I got my nose pierced. <laughs> and he actually did. I do. I actually still have it. Yeah, but I think that when he started in the doctoral seminary, he figured, hey, I, had to hide I guess it. I better hide the I thing hide because it. you know, it's probably says, not going to fly. Things out. to all people, and it, I, you know, I'm just trying to. It's not going to fly out on Seminary Hill. Says. Now, the question is, how do you handle gossip? Not about yourself. We'll talk about that in a minute. But how do you handle when someone comes to you and begins to espouse information that you think might be gossip? How do you handle that? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Three simple questions that you can ask when someone brings information to you. Number one, you can ask the question, can I talk to the source? Can I talk to the source? Again, this open letter, it just vaguely... It just vaguely talks about the nations, right? There's no actual source here. Whenever I hear something that sounds like gossip, first question I always ask is, who told you that? And and if they cannot tell me or they're unwilling to tell me because of confidentiality, yeah, then uh, that's just baptized crap is what that is, all right? Just call it what it is. They're known as gossip. If they can't do that or they're not able or willing to, that's a big red flag for me. 
That's probably, there's something else going on behind the scenes. Second question you can ask is, do the details make sense? I think this is such an important question to ask. It's, it's super important. Sometimes gossip is so nonsensical. Like, it, listen, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna be a gossip, okay, at least do your homework. <laughs> Get something that has a little tinge of truth. Yeah, there's nothing worse than lazy gossip. Everyone, <laughs> lazy gossip. everyone knew, everyone that knew Nehemiah knew that he had Artaxerxes support. They knew that, it was, it was clear. He not only gave him permission, he gave him, there's a duck in the house. Called out. I'm just kidding. Hey, I called out someone for the phone thing. If I ever call you out for the phone thing, I'm completely kidding. I don't care. It's fine. Uh, don't answer it in here. Go out and answer it. But it doesn't bother me. Uh, it, it, they knew that Artaxerxes had given full support to Nehemiah, that he had given them supplies, he had given them permission, that he had promoted him to governor. They, they understood that. They also knew, if they knew Nehemiah well, that he had sacrificed a lot personally to do what he was doing. I mean, we talked last week, again, 12 years as governor of Judah, he never took the food allowance. He never took the 40 shekels a day from the people because he knew that it would burden the people. And he took out of his own pockets money to support the 150 people, staff that were working with him, and hmm. even the diplomats as they were coming in. He'd sacrificed a ton personally so to do what, what he was doing. what they're saying was totally contrary to the character that of they who had he was. observed. Of, of yeah. who they, exactly. And, and so it made no sense to them. Why would he rebel? Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. Whenever you hear something that sounds like gossip, if it doesn't line up with what you know about that individual, it's probably not true. If you know them well, it's probably not true. You can say to them, you know, that doesn't sound right. I know that person pretty well, and that is not what I know of them at all. I've never seen that that, that characteristic, I've never seen them do that, I've never seen them act that way. A, a third question you can ask, I think is also super important, is does this information edify or destroy? Have you ever noticed that gossip never seeks to build up? <laughs> you ever notice that? No one has ever said to me, I heard a rumor that you're the nicest person on the planet. <laughs> do you know why? Because I go to the same church as John Lipitsky and he's the nicest person on the planet. He is the nicest person No one would ever say that planet. about me. He is. No one would ever say that about me if they know John. John is legitimately the nicest guy I know. Uh, you, you never hear anyone talk about other people like, you know, I heard a rumor that they're the most faithful givers in the kingdom of God. <laughs> you never hear that. You never hear someone say that. You know, I heard that he spends more time in personal study of the word than anyone I know. <laughs> no one is spreading rumors Everyone like that. Everyone is saying it. Yeah, no, no one ever spreads that. It's always to destroy. The purpose of this letter was to destroy. And so anytime gossip or slander comes to our doorstep, it should be rejected. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If it does not build up, then don't say it. Don't say it. Now, listen, you have permission when someone says something to you that sounds like gossip to say to them, you know, that sounds like it's bordering on gossip to me. And so you need to go to that person one-on-one, -on -one, like Jesus said, and deal with it and, and not talk to anyone else about that. And that will do one of two things. It will either uh, correct their heart, their sinful little heart, <laughs> and they'll go and make it right, or they will mark you off the list of people that they come to to gossip. Either way, it's a win. <laughs> either way, you win. That's it's a right. win either way. This is free. I'm not even charging for this. This is free information. Now, what if the gossip is about you? What do you do? Go to Facebook. Open. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> so, first of all, 
you deal with it. Verse eight, no such things, this is what Nehemiah says, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. That's what he says to them. You're making it up. You are crazy. You're crazy. That's not true. You deal with it straight on. Don't go passive aggressive. Don't go around. Don't, don't go gossiping about that person. That, also, that happens a lot in, in church circles. Like, hey, I heard so-and-so about you, and, and so-and-so was saying this. And then you start going, hey, so-and-so was saying so-and-so about me. And, and it just becomes this weird right, hurricane of gossip. Don't go down that line. Go at the person straightforwardly and address it. Number two, ask God for strength. Uh, Nehemiah asks God for strength in verse 9. He says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Mm. Don't try and meet gossip or slander out of your own strength. Mm -hmm. You're powerless over it. You're powerless over it. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in his strength and in his power to do what is necessary. And three, if you're doing that, then stay faithful and maintain your witness. Don't allow gossip and slander to demoralize you to the point of actually becoming a problem, hmm. right, and, and ruining your witness. Maintain, stay faithful, and maintain your witness. And let me just say as a, as a side note, uh, something that I think is so important, probably the most important protection that you can have against gossip and slander is that you live transparently, number one, and in community, number two. Those two things are so important. Transparently and in community. If you live in such a way where you are known to those around you, the less you become unknown to those around you. And it's so much more challenging for people to spread false information about you if they know true information about you. If you are an unknown entity, it, there's, there's all kinds of question marks, right? If someone says so-and-so uh, you know, did this and no one really knows who you are, then there's a question, right? Well, I wonder if that's true. I don't really know that person, so I, I, I can't really weigh against that. But if you live in community, transparently with that community, then all of a sudden you have built-in protection in your community against things that are not true. Case in point, so my, in my life, I, there are people that are very close to me that I share, and I share in men's group on Tuesday morning, uh, one, of, one of the deepest, if not the deepest character defect that I fight against on a day-to-day -day basis, I have since I was a kid, is the feeling of insignificance. It's something that, that developed out of my childhood. Uh, there, there's a lot of reasons for why, uh, but I learned early on a performance kind of way of earning value and worth, and even then, it, it didn't seem to work very well, and so I grew up feeling insignificant, like what I do doesn't really matter. And, and it worked itself out in a lot of different ways. I was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, where you put things off, like it's escaping Procrastination. me. Procrastinator, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason, as a young man, I would procrastinate a lot because my, my thought process was, well, it's not gonna matter because I don't matter, right? So if I don't get it done on time, it's not gonna affect anybody because what I do doesn't matter. This is how it kind of played out. And I've had to work through that, through years and years and years of doing 12-step uh, work and, and, and just genuine, intimate community with other brothers in the church. I've, I've learned to identify that voice. That's an important aspect, right, of my life and my story. And, and there's a protective measure then, because then if someone comes to someone who is close to me and says, you know, I, I just think Derek thinks that he's God's gift to humanity, <laughs> the people who are closest to me would be like, no, he doesn't. He doesn't even know if God uh, even knows he's here. Yeah, he's not even sure God's <laughs> using him most of the time, if we're being, uh, if we're being fair. So, yeah, it, it, this is an important aspect of Amen. Christian living that will actually earn you a lot of protection against things that could potentially be said about you. 
Uh, when you hear something that is a shot at you, slanderous, weigh it. See if there's any truth to it. Sometimes there's like pebbles of truth, right? Uh, and, and so deal with that. But overwhelmingly, living transparently, it, it, it removes the power of that defect over your life, mm-hmm. and it protects you from, from other people saying untrue things about you. Super important. So if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, I don't really know what my character defect is, then it's a, you need to get into a freedom group. You need to get into the process. Find out what you don't know. Find out what you don't know. You can't address, listen, that thing is, is wreaking havoc on your life in ways that you're not even aware of. And your walk with Jesus and in the way that you demonstrate Jesus to other people. And you cannot even address it if you don't know what it is. That's the amazing part. This is why it's just easier in American Christianity to go, well, I'm going to pray for you, brother. You just need to read your Bible more and, <laughs> and memorize Scripture as if that's going to do anything to help you with that core wound that is ruining your life and potentially ruining your witness as well. Okay, that wasn't in the notes. Let's keep moving. Um, they tried to distract him. They tried to demoralize him. And last, they sought to destroy him. We don't really have time to discuss this, uh, but in verses 10 through 14, uh, the opponents of Nehemiah enlist the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of his right-hand man. Yeah, uh, Shemaiah is his name. He's a very close person to Nehemiah, and they essentially buy him off uh, <laughs> to turn on Nehemiah and ultimately in hopes to destroy him. Uh, he's kind of a Judas-like character in this story, a betrayer. And uh, Shemaiah comes to Nehemiah and tells him that, look, Sanballat and Tobiah mean to kill you, which is actually not false, it is true, uh, and that you should go and run and hide in the temple. <laughs> in verses 12 and 13, it says, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. There are two things going on here. One, if Nehemiah were to run and hide, uh, it certainly doesn't look good, right? (laughs) Um, Beyond the fact that it's an act of cowardice, if you have not done something, if you're being accused of something that you've not done, you're not guilty of, the worst thing you can do is run and hide. (laughs) Because it kind of looks like you did it, right? Uh, It's not a good tactic. But secondly, the details of where he's to run matter. They say to go and run in the temple and hide in the temple. And the word here uh, in the Hebrew is a word that indicates not the outer courts, but the inner sanctum, which is only reserved for priests. And one of the things that we've said over and over again is that what makes Nehemiah such a relatable character to us is that he's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not someone of uh, of great importance. He's just a regular person who God uses to influence people around him. And so as a non-priest, a non-Levite, to go into this part of the temple would actually be sin. It would be wrong. And it would be something they could then use against him to tear him down. So uh, Shemaiah was setting him up. He was setting him up. For a price. I ain't cheap, but I can be bought. I can be bought. Now, there are two things, again, that, that I will say to this. One is uh, the, the act of cowardice, again, not, not a good tactic. Stand and face the problem head on. But number two, this speaks very clearly to the importance of knowing God's commandments, of knowing what God has said. Because if Nehemiah did not understand God's word, he would not have understood he can't go into that part of the temple. And it would have still been sin whether he knew it or not. 
This is so much of what gets us in trouble even today. Christians, knowing the scripture matters a great deal. It's so important. Cannot be overstated. You don't know the boundaries, then how will you know whether or not you step over them? It's so important. It's so, so important. But here's the bottom line. The enemy of God seeks to, if not distract you as a Christ follower with the millions of things. Again, I mean, the cognitive studies that have been done on the attention span of an adult in America in 2022 are terrifying. <laughs> About 15 seconds. 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I gave the statistics. that there's, there's a lot of them. They're horrible. We have the attention span of a gnat. <laughs> and so it's not hard for the enemy to distract us, right? But if he can't distract you, then he'll seek to demoralize you. And if you're living transparently in community and you have some good protective boundaries in your life that prevent that from that kind of thing demoralizing you, he'll ultimately try to lead you in fear to destroy you by having you sin, Mm. by moving you into a place of sin. And ultimately, that's where Nehemiah is. This was a fear tactic. They're gonna kill you, Nehemiah. You better run now. This is fear. And when we are operating out of fear, and you couple that with a lack of understanding of God's word, it is so easy. In fact, it's natural in our fallen states to move past the boundary and sin. And it's in that sin that the enemy seeks to destroy you. Be aware, be alert of these things. Don't be distracted. Don't be demoralized. And ultimately, do not allow yourself to be destroyed by that which you don't know. Amen. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you. We praise you for uh, just, again, a clear uh, example in Nehemiah's life in this chapter that, that is just so applicable to us even over 2,000 years later. Uh, your, your truth is timeless, and so it shouldn't surprise us that it's applicable. But, but help us, God. Help us understand those things in our lives that, that are distractions and remove them. Uh, Be on guard against the things that that could potentially demoralize us. Help us live more uh, vulnerably in community, in safe community, in in, in the safe environment um, that is is found here in this church. Help us be honest, brutally honest, about the things that that war against us and, and in so many ways prevent us from following you in the way that you would desire us to follow you. And ultimately, God, help us be vigilant Uh, to be on the lookout against the schemes of the enemy which seek to move us into a place of sin ultimately Mm. to destroy us, God. We we love you. We thank you. And and I do again, Lord, just want to thank you for... the gift of motherhood, and, and, and that gift looks so uh, different in so many ways. It's, it's not only, always biological, um, it's not always even familial, but, but the power that you have given uh, women mm. in, their, in their unique, creative way to influence and love and nurture and lead is uh, something that we, we don't want to take for granted. And so I thank you for, for every woman here uh, this morning, God. Bless them and bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. I do want to say, guys, Roots Men's Conference, sign up in the foyer. Don't be distracted or demoralized (laughs) or destroyed. Or you will be destroyed. Go out there. (laughs) Sign up. Well, that's the use of the text. (laughs) 